Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, and with me here is Aaron Cameron. We are spending the whole day at the Land and Development Conference. It's one of my uh, favorite of the year, given that uh, in my day job, I'm very active in construction. We've got a guest on today, Sherry Larjani, who's president of Spotlight Development. She just appeared on a panel about affordable housing inclusionary zoning. So we will touch on those subjects at some point today, but her story is a lot broader than that. So we're going to get into a whole variety of topics. Uh, Sherry, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just to set the, set the stage for our listeners, can we spend a few minutes on you know, your background and how you got to be where you are today? Mm-hmm, of course. So I think I started in this industry in a, a little bit different than others that I know. I was raised in a family that was more keen on education being sort of uh, directed towards either being a doctor or a dentist. And that was sort of the way to go. And that was something my father had envisioned for me to, you know, or for my future. So I started my studies in sciences and biology and all of those leading towards, you know, becoming a doctor or a dentist. But that was definitely not something I always wanted to do. I always had my eyes on tall buildings and skyscrapers around the city and looking at, you know, properties that were for sale. For some reason, it was always of interest to me. But I didn't come from a family that was, you know, in real estate or had absolutely anything to do with development. So it was just a keen interest of mine. So I had to actually go against all of my dad's visions and say, you know what, this is not what I want to do. My goal is to become an architect. And I think my father sort of put some ground rules for me and he gave me six months and said, you know what, go ahead. You have six months. If you can get into any of these programs that you say you want to kind of pursue, I'll let you be. But if not, you're going back and you're becoming a doctor. So I guess luckily I was able to take the courses that I did not have and do the hard work of putting a portfolio together, applying for an architecture program. And I got into Ryerson University to study architecture. And I think that set my way. Um, was there a uh, hot take this dad moment? <laughs> um, it was very much a hot take this that moment kind of thing. But I don't think he really cared. He's like... <laughs> well, architecture is kind of... I mean, it's, I see it as scientific. I know it's art and science, but it's... It definitely is. I don't think people appreciate the hard work that you have to put in to even get into those programs. We had to go through tests and, you know, you got to show some art and have some artistic background. And you also have to know something about the sciences and physics and structure and all of that. So I, I think I managed to do that. And I think I remember what my father said. He said, you just deserve to be working on a site with construction guys all day. So go ahead and do that. And I said, okay, no problem. I'll do that. <laughs> it was my passion. So it just didn't bother me. So I got out of the university and I don't think it was, again, working in an architectural firm. I started working in an architectural firm because that's what you do. You get hired by a good architect. And I got hired by one of the good um, residential architects at that time, Gordon Ridgely Architects. And he was, to me, a very scary guy. He's since passed away, but he's left a lot of memories in my mind as to the short period of time that I worked for him. But I remember I used to always design these um, Georgian homes that, you know, not design them, just put them in CAD for the houses that he was sort of designing so that we can have the drawing sets ready to go for permit. And I think I found it the most boring job ever. So I think I was thinking that my dad was right and I should have gone a different way (laughs) at that point in time, but it just wasn't me. And um, I always had that side of me that kind of wanted to get out there and actually see the things I design come to life. And I think that kind of 
put the next phase of my life into perspective for me that I can't be sitting behind a computer, you know, doing CAD work for an architect. Um, my goal is to be out there on a construction site where my dad saw me as, you know, or he saw that as a place for me to be at. So I, I was uh, lucky enough that my father-in-law also agreed that that was the way to go. And he said, I'm going to invest in you. And he invested in me to build my first home. And that's how I started in this industry. I, I designed and built my first home in the Villodale West area at that point because it was a land I could afford. And with the support of my father-in-law and my father, we actually made it happen. Don't forget your husband somewhere in there. <laughs> well, I don't ever forget my husband, but I think he believed in me all the way and he still does. And he puts up with all of my crazy sh- all the time. <laughs> so let's not forget about that. But I think it was the first believer that I've had that actually believed in my vision and the fact that I can pull this off as my father-in-law. So, cutting a check's a real substantiation of belief. Definitely, yeah, there's a difference. Yes. Well, you know, everybody can say I believe. Everybody can say I believe in you. Oh, I yeah. believe in you. Go get it. Well, how? You know, where's the money? So I think the fact that he did that was So you built this house and where did it go from there? So I built this house and it's funny because while I was building it, I was the first person on a job site with my pink heart hat and my pink shoes all the time. Thinking that I'm like doing such a great job and the house is getting built. And you know what? It's funny because everything I've learned in school didn't mean anything when I started doing the construction on a job site. Because everything started to actually become meaningful when you saw it in reality and we saw it actually happening in front of you. So what happened was as I was building it, I was getting all these comments and things. You know, I remember someone passing by the site and they hunked and I went there and they said, hi. They're like, oh, wow, the roof is still on. And I said, yeah, it's still on. And, you know, those kind of comments started to come. And I realized the problems that we have in this industry with women being on a job site, women leading the job sites and being in charge and overall women in this industry. And I think that's when my realization actually kicked in that, that, you know what, you're not supposed to be here because they don't want you to be here. But it actually also reinforced all of my thinking of that I belong here and I have to be here. So it was difficult, but I I managed to build the first house and actually put it in the market. And while I was doing that, the fact that I was actually doing that and moving ahead with it and it was getting to a place where it was ready to be sold, it brought more of the confidence from my family, all of them, so that they can trust in me to do more and take it to uh, the next level from there on. And that spawned Spotlight? No, I was actually still doing more houses at that time. So they allowed me to buy more properties. And I think at that time, what I did was I was actually interested in development because it wasn't just house building and design. It wasn't satisfying enough. So I guess... It was the boots on the ground. It was. Boots on the ground. Yes, 100%. It was giving me something. It was giving me the experience. But it was like, oh, I've done that. Now I'm done. What do I do next? So... I built about 14, 15. Some of them were major addition renovations, but I've built those through, you know, I used to call the company Net House alongside of Spotlight, but that was doing only single family homes. And then I started buying lands that I could see as potential development sites that I could do more density on. And those were mainly for development and they were mainly for low rise development. So subdivisions of townhouses and things like that. When did you know you wanted to grow it? Because you started just building houses. And this is just an interesting entrepreneurial question, right? Because you weren't satisfied with just designing the houses, then you weren't satisfied with just building the houses or doing additions. At what point were you like, wait a minute, I want to build an 80-unit apartment building. I want to build a… Yeah, were you working on a duplex with a vision of a 300-unit building in your head? Was it… Uh, yeah, like was how, it or was it just of? really almost, yeah. almost subconscious? Did you get to this point? 
I think what I can say is that it was definitely subconscious because I don't think I was ever satisfied with what I was doing at that point because to me, the opportunities were out there for me to grow. So I didn't want to stop and I didn't want to stay still and stay where I was. And the only way to grow and the only way to sort of improve my entrepreneurial life or business life was to grow it and to do more projects. And the only way to do more projects to me sounded like not building single family homes, but making sure I do something that's a little bit different than, you know, the other builders around me that I do because, um, I remember at that time, I used to say that, you know, everybody who comes here and has a little bit of money can I start building a single family home. But what is there to differentiate me from that builder or from the next door builder on the street that's building? So I think it was wanting to excel and it was the subconscious wanting to grow and not being satisfied. I can't explain it any other way. Ask my husband. He says it's Sherry being crazy Sherry. But That's <laughs> <laughs> not very nice. It seems to work in this case though. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So when did Spotlight come on? Let's just talk about the present then and what the company looks like, size, scope, projects. So we're not a very large firm. We have about 12 or 13 employees, but we have big projects and we have big partnerships. I think the way I I managed to do it and the way I managed to get to where I was hoping to get to was by building proper partnerships. That's how I put myself through the education of development because I don't think anybody in this industry teaches you how to become a developer. I think they teach you how to become an architect, an engineer, a structural engineer, whatever the case may be, but they don't teach you how to be a developer. And I think the idea of the developer was always this Trump-looking guy that has all the money and inherited some money from the family. So it wasn't something that was out there for me to grab. So I think I had to sort of learn. And the only way to learn was to first own a piece of land that people might be interested in or other developers might be interested in it, and then going to them and asking them for partnership. And I think that's what I did. So I went to them with the idea of, uh, you know, I have this piece of land. I want to partner. This is the only way I'm willing to partner, that you guys let me walk with you at every step of the way so I can learn because I'm doing it so I can learn. And I think I got lucky. So I think that's how Spotlight started to grow. We started with me being me, going from office to office and, you know, having my two people in the office, but me knocking at every door, cold calling everybody that I knew in the industry because I knew very little people in the industry. I don't come from that background. I don't come from that family. So it had to be me cold calling everyone that I knew. You know, I called Urban Capital because I love their building on River City and I own the property on River Street. I picked up the phone and I called David Wex from Urban Capital. I think he first thought that, you know, what the heck is she talking about? But I said, I have a property and I want to partner with you. And he said, okay come, let's talk. And I think the opportunity that he gave me, the mentorship that he gave me with that project and many other projects that I'm doing with him and Taya Cook at at Auburn Capital, I think it opened all the doors for me. And I think... Why was it that they were willing? I mean, I I know the answer. I'm giving you the opportunity. Like, why was it that they said, you know what? I want to take this chance. It couldn't have just been, she's got great land. So so Aaron, what's the answer then? Well, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll tell you what it was. I think it was that they saw that I was willing to make that call, first of all. And I think he saw that eagerness in me that I wanted to get a meeting with him, sit in front of him. And I think what I had done to that point was that I had educated myself enough in the industry to know what I was talking about. So I wasn't sitting at a table as a landowner. I was sitting there as, uh, you know, someone that understood 
as much as I could at that point about what development was all about, what the potential on my land was, what I was talking about when I was talking about the zoning, the status of my application, where I was with the project. So I think the fact that he gave me an opportunity to talk about all of that and sit in front of him was the first step. But prior to that, I think it sort of ignited some interest in him to say that, who is this person who's just calling and asking for a partnership because I own the land? Adam and I met Sherry, whatever, 18 minutes ago now. (laughs) And I can tell you right now, just sitting across for the last 15 minutes asking questions, you're the kind of person that you're going to get it done no matter what. So I could imagine anybody sitting across the table is going, well, it's either going to be me or somebody else. So why don't I be the person that participates in this? Because what's the point, right? It's, you, you don't take no for an answer, it seems like. Anyway, I, I, wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be at a negotiation table with you. I want to be on your side of the table. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'll take that as an amazing compliment. But I honestly think when it came to my partners, it was the interest in the location and the land as well. I was able to buy land in a good location. And I think it's funny because I tell everybody this, that there is, um, I don't know if anyone believes in chances or luck or anything like that. And there were things that fell into place, not in the beginning, but they fell into place as I was growing my business. So I bought that piece of land and everybody was like, oh my gosh, Sherry, you know, for 120,000 square feet in that location, we have to put in the same amount of time and we have to spend the same amount of money on our application that we would do for a bigger project. So make it bigger. And I think I went about making it bigger because I wanted a partner. And I know that David became a friend from that point on, but I know I, so I ended up doing a partnership on that project with Liberty Development. And at that time I was talking to Tridel, which to me was like, Tridel was basically the only name I knew in the development industry. Who doesn't know Tridel? So it was me getting a seat at their table to sit and talk to them and them potentially looking at my site. It was like a big boost of confidence. Knowing and entertaining that. the idea that you're going to be it was part definitely of the development. You're not, you're not silent. I wasn't. They were allowing me. No, yeah. with or Liberty, selling the land. Or, yeah. yeah, no, no, no. It wasn't any of that. So they did say that, you know what, Sherry, this is a small site. Go and make it bigger and then we'll do it with you. It took me about a year and a half to buy the next door property and make it as big of a site as it is now. But again, as going back to maybe you're right, I, going back to me putting my mind into the fact that I am going to buy that property, I ended up buying it. But I think it was a difficult negotiation the group that I was dealing with. It's funny because we were just talking, you know, chatting before about Parallax Group where we bought our Reina site from. The father-in-law of the, one of the members of the Parallax Group was the person I actually bought my first site from. So I was kind of going back to them. Just the network grows and you never know (laughs) where the next opportunity is coming from. Real estate's funny that way. You never know. But it was just interesting because they put a mandate in front of me that said, your site is too small, make it bigger and we're coming in. And I ended up doing... Uh, this is Tridel. Th- at that time, it was Tridel. It was Liberty. Same oh. as Liberty. Liberty said, you know what? We're not used to doing small sites because, you know, they're they're famous for doing projects in the suburbs that are larger. And this was such a small site for them. So they said, you know what? Make it bigger. And I ended up doing it. And I actually ended up partnering with Liberty because they were the first that came to the table. And they did also help me a lot. Um, it was, you know, Fred has always been... Someone that I looked at, like my father or even go back a generation, my grandfather, because my father was very young. But he was always the person that I kind of listened to and paid attention to how he does business. And I think you learn something from everyone. I learned something from him. I learned something from David, who became my partner. And, and so on goes and so on. on. Yeah. <laughs> so let's circle back to Spotlight for a minute. What was the name of that project on River Street? It is still a project on River Street. And it still doesn't have a name because okay. thanks to the city of Toronto, we've been going 
oh God, I'm going to get myself and my partners in trouble. Yeah. But uh, thanks to the city of Toronto, it's we've been sitting long, at the settlements. Yeah, yeah, we've been sitting at the um, settlement table. Yeah, we understand that. What's, but the, it was a what's the size of the scope now? It's about 340,000 square feet. It's a mixed use project. It's a condo retail. It's a condo retail. Yeah. It's a condo retail. Yeah. So I guess it, it did hold true then that given that the workload is more than you originally thought it would be, now you're probably happy it's a larger site to make it worthwhile. Oh, 100%. 100%. And I don't think I had that understanding at that point. But I think when I got more into the business, I realized what they were saying was completely true. But it opened new doors for me, obviously. Let's go to Rena next. And you, this was the site you were just talking about where you acquired it and you knew the father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do the background? Yeah, let it? me do yeah, it. Because yeah. I literally lived like, I don't know, it's 40 meters from the from the site. <laughs> and it's on a Queensway mm-hmm. at basically at Royal York, just immediately so, yeah. east of Royal York yes. on the south side. And you talked about the perception of women in real estate earlier on in your career. And this is an all design and development, all female design and development team mm-hmm. on this site. Mm-hmm. Can we just talk about the vision, the execution, and what it's like to just be part of that. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that that perception didn't change much when I sort of evolved and moved from the job side to the negotiating table with the partners because it was always the first conversation and the first question I was asked many tables was, what do you have for sale? And I was always like, I don't have anything for sale. I'm the landowner. I'm sitting here asking for a partnership. I'm not selling anything to you. And I think it was always the perception that if I am in this industry, I'm not a developer. I'm always a real estate agent. And it kind of worked the same because on a job site, it was people passing by me, going to my painter who was a man, asking him for some question. In here, it was that I was, you know, supposed to be selling something. So I was facing that every day in, in my career. And I it's very funny because I was looking for female developers at that time to sort of kind of figure out who's out there, who's a female and who's doing this. And it was very hard to find even a handful. So, Probably um, especially in the north of 50 or 60 crowd too. 100%. 100%. So Taya Cook, my partner at Urban Capital, is the director of development Urban Capital, who was working with David since the inception of Urban Capital, read an article in the Toronto Life magazine that said, you know, here are the people who are building your city and here are the kings of condos. There was absolutely no mention of absolutely any woman that has anything to do with building your city. So she got really furious. And I think having someone like Dave um, to support us on this project, he basically spoke to Taya and Taya said, this is how I feel and I think we should do this project. And he's like, go ahead. So, you know, again, good on them both for Taya coming up with the idea and for Dave backing us up. And they called me. As they, Taya said, I was the only person, again, building up that relationship and having gone to their office many times and talking about partnership. They called me and I said, hell yes, I'm in. Let's do this. And the rest of it is history. We made news and we realized that the conversation that we were having and the problem that we saw was not just a national problem. It was a worldwide problem. We got into New York Times. We got into Opera Magazine. We were interviewed by many, many news outlets out there asking us, you know, well, but what we see as a problem and how we can sort of solve this, which is shedding a light on the problems that we saw in the industry. So I think that was a truly amazing experience for both of us. Has it gotten any better over time? I think what has gotten better is that the level of confidence I have in myself and in my business and in my establishment has grown. I don't know if it has because I'm not in the same position as I was many years ago. I can tell you that we have become visible. Like I I remember that that I used to get these phone calls from people calling me a unicorn 
saying, oh, you know what? You know, you're like a unicorn. We've been searching for female developers and, you know, your name came up. Having to be a unicorn in the industry, you know, look at today. Me and Taya took a funny picture because you look at the room and 90% of the room is men. And it's all about land and development industry. That should show you that there has to be a shift in order for sort of our message to get across. So I think, yes, there has definitely been sort of awareness that's been brought to the whole conversation. But in reality, I think we have grown and our level of confidence has also grown. So it makes it harder for people to intimidate us or to put us in the situation or the position that we were put in many years ago when we started. Oh, yeah. Walking around with big projects is the best way of uh, making a statement, of course. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have to say, it's also just a sociological, cultural shift, Mm -hmm. right? I just think as generations transition to more positions of power, they just come from a different background, a different perspective, right? Like, I think Adam and I have a different view than our parents did, our fathers did, on just the makeup of society as it Mm -hmm. was, right? So I think, fortunately, over time it occurs. Is it happening fast enough? Absolutely not. But thanks to people like yourself and others that it's happening more quickly than it would have had you not been doing what you're doing, right? Yes, of course, of course. And you know what? We hope there's more of us out there. I don't mind being a unicorn. There's no doubt, but I I hope there's (laughs) more of us out there to lead the way for the next generation. I have a young daughter and um, I hope that she can see this as an opportunity for her to actually inherit the business from the mom rather than, you know, the business being inherited by from the father. Well, real estate is a very intergenerational yeah. uh, concept, so uh, your probability is high. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe she'll have the same moment uh, you did when you were uh, you know, training might. to be a doctor. And go, I can't do real she estate. Might. Just... She was, her, her grandma is a doctor, so she <laughs> might actually lean that way. But again, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah you have no, you have no, you have no you control. You have no control yeah. Obviously, as you your father well knows. Right? Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about the affordability mm-hmm. issue. I know you just got off a panel about affordability and inclusionary zoning, but you had mentioned it offline before we hit record of a uh, 1500 unit mm-hmm. project. So this is, I guess, more focused on Spotlight. We've talked about two existing projects. This is a future project. Maybe just talk about the vision, the strategy, and what you're trying to achieve. So appreciate you guys talking about this project. And um, I think this conversation deserves a lot more of a conversation to be had amongst all the different groups and different industries that are involved in housing. This project is the spotlight development that I grew into a for-profit entity has now an arm of non-for-profit, which has been my dream to do something. And it was always, how do you give back? And this was my way of giving back because now I'm in an industry where we're building housing and we're selling it and we're profiting from it. So how do I give back? You know, when I was younger, it was giving my toys away that I was, you know, privileged enough to have. Now it's, you know, I built housing. How do I give it back? I tried and attempted to do a couple of projects and looked into the idea. I didn't pursue them ever fully because I saw all the red tags and the problems. But this project happened to be a piece of land that I bought myself and it allowed me the opportunity to be creative. So I decided that I'm going to dedicate this project to affordable housing. We have about uh, 1,470 units that we've proposed to the city. We've submitted for zoning and site Where's the land? It's at a corner of Black Creek and Lawrence. Okay. It's an old plaza that's about 3.45 acres and that we're changing it. It's a mixed-use designation where we're changing it into a retail plus, you know, all these units. Now, the twist of the story is that 
you know, this is not a project that the land is owned by the municipality or the province or that is, you know, dedicating it to the affordable housing. This is a privately owned land that I am dedicating for the purposes of affordable housing. And I'm not dedicating it only for the affordable housing to be rental because I see the problem as a bigger problem. It's not just renters that are looking and struggling to find houses to rent, but it is also young professional adults that are going out there, making the money, have the, have the education, have the work ethics and can't afford to buy a single home. Their first uh, investment that's supposed to be their home is never going to happen because they don't have the means to purchase at the prices that are out there. So this project is going to be tackling not only providing rental units, but it's also going to be providing affordable ownership models. And we're going to be offering few models because you can get as creative as you want when it comes to affordable ownership. It's just a matter of figuring out the financing. And we have Barry Lyons, which is obviously a well-known name in the industry who's working on that PM strategies. Peter Milchin is actually working with us. And we have amazing partners. We have Strategy Corpus Consultants. And we have amazing non-for-profit partners who've been advocating and working in this field. So we have Habitat for Humanity, Wood Green Rental. We are working with Trillium Housing and Black North Initiative. And recently we started discussions with YMCA. So we have an amazing group of people who've been doing this forever, all in one project, all with the same goal of providing affordable housing. And just to be clear, we're not talking like deep affordable. Yes, it's, we have everything. We just def- we'll define affordability that just for the purposes of this project, yeah. just because so, that's a complicated... 100%. Yeah. So the wood green rentals that we are offering in this project are going to be very deep, subsidized, affordable, or supportive housing. They are going to be serving different groups of the community. Again, the goal for this project is to be serving every single community out there and not to be exclusive to a certain group. So the uh, wood green units are going to be serving transitional battered woman groups, youth that are, you know, uh, looking for housing and they're trying to transition, elderly that don't have anywhere else to go and they need housing. So we're providing subsidized housing for those groups. With the, when talking about deep affordability, Habitat for Humanity is working with us. And I am, again, for people who know about Habitat, they offer the deepest affordable ownership model that you can find out there through their model. And through the work that they do, which they're going to be taking up 10% of our units. Now, when we say affordability, we're not talking about 10% below market. We're not talking about 20% below market. We're talking about one third of the price of the market units. That's what we're offering to the people that come through Habitat and same as Black North. Then we move up slowly to the groups who make around 90000 220000 who might qualify for a reasonable $200,000 mortgage, which at the end of the day doesn't get them absolutely anything. Find me a, a unit for yeah, less than a million. So, you know, with two hundred, yeah. So with $200,000 that our banks will give us, nobody's going to be able to afford something. So what we have done is we've come up with this creative solutions of playing with shared appreciation mortgages through Trillium, through Black North, and through our own non-for-profit to tackle the ownership model. So that's more of a geared to income model. Every income level is geared towards one of our partners. So I think it's our way of making sure that everybody's included and we're not cutting anyone out. And the other thing that we're doing through YMCA is again, we're helping the Black families through Black North. We're helping the deepest threshold of affordability through Habitat. Wood Green is serving all the communities I just mentioned. We have Trillium who does seamless affordable housing. And we also have through YMCA dedicated housing to the LGBTQ++ community. That's supportive housing for them. We're also doing veterans housing. Again, 
overlooked. Like I have been searching yeah, everywhere. Long-term care isn't isn't the solution. It's for not even. Yeah, well, but, veterans housing is a, like show me a place where we're providing housing for veterans. And again, I have my best friend is in the army, and I see the struggles that he has to go through. And I don't think there is light at the end of the tunnel when you leave the army for you to get all these incentives and all these bonuses for the work you've done. So I think that's another group. We're also providing indigenous housing. So ten percent of our project is is dedicated to indigenous housing. So. We're encompassing everything, newcomers that come to Canada. And then we have 70% of the project dedicated to all of the groups I just mentioned. 30% of the project is being sold to market. Now, the twist of the story is me as the big bad developer is not taking that 30% profit. What I'm doing is I'm cross-subsidizing the 30% profit that I make off of those 30% units, bringing it back to the project to be able to offer the units at the prices that I'm offering through Habitat for Humanity or Black North or offering Wood Green to be able to buy my land instead of a municipally owned land and be able to offer the units that they're offering. So that's basically the And the answer. city just said the city just said, come on in. This is a great idea. Uh, the city, no, we've we're still waiting for Mayor Tory to meet with us and we have spoken to some of the councillors. We have gotten pretty good feedback from this them. This would be a tough one to oppose, I think. For uh, uh, I hope so. But we've also met with the ministers at the different levels of government through provincial and federal. And I think we're hopeful, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we have their support. Because yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly that this is a project that's hard to oppose. But then again, go back to the idea of community involvement. People are talking about traffic as a problem when we're providing housing. Traffic is a problem everywhere. How do you tackle that? You can't tackle it in anywhere in the city, let alone in a project where we're providing 1,500 units. Well, and enforcing further sprawl is not the answer to, Definitely uh, to not. driving. Definitely not. So when you're structuring this, because obviously you've got a lot of groups in play here, and probably, I mean, you can tell me before uh, I can speculate, but I imagine a lot of the incentive structures are different. A lot of the requirements or criteria you'd be building under be different. Does it make the overall development layering on complexity to complexity to complexity to try and yes. satisfy? Or is it back to that subconscious you just want to keep doing more and more and more? The more complex, the better. So the complexity, I'll tell you how complex it is because when I was talking to my team at Barry Lyons who have just done the reports and the studies for the city and the municipality and all of that, they called this the most complicated performa they ever worked on. So go figure. But I believe that this is the performa that is going to be the way to tackle affordable housing and affordable housing, as they like to call it, you know, listening to your podcast before with the big A or the little A, it doesn't really matter. You have to tackle it. You have to create supply. Now, how do you do that? By providing more housing, but also by providing alternative solutions of ownership through the financing means that you provide because one program doesn't fit all. Everybody needs to get a tailored program. And what we're doing through our programs, we're offering so many different options and different variations of financing to tackle the idea that one size doesn't fit all. Is rent-to-own a part of the picture? Definitely. We are working on our own model of rent-to-own, which we haven't perfected it yet with all the concerns. But going back to the incentives that we receive, none at this point. Hoping and asking and knocking at all the doors. The rentals would not be a problem. Rental would be able to get us there to where we want to get with uh, incentives. But ownership is not something that, unless it is in perpetuity, even then, it's not being looked at as a means of tackling affordable housing, unfortunately. So it's sort of us and our team who have been doing this forever, our partners, I mean, at the table, fighting for those incentives. 
So then when, I guess when you're raising equity for this project, what's the pitch there? <laughs> <laughs> wow, you brought up uh, like... Well, a uh, <laughs> good transition. We want to talk about raising capital. Here you yeah. go. How do you, oh, what does God. this look like? It looks like hell. I'm so sorry <laughs> yeah. to say that. Well, there's no IRR that makes this work, right? Let's see, the thing is, everybody talks about being impact investors. Now, please explain to me what impact means. Yes, if you're saying that I'm an impact investor that's all willing to do a sustainable project, which we qualify. We're doing geothermal, we're doing solar panels, we're doing fit wall designation, all the nice things that you do. How do you provide impact investment for projects like affordable housing projects that are going to never meet the IRRs that you're looking for in a conventional equity world? Finding those investors, and there are investors out there, there are groups out there that have raised millions and millions of money for the purpose of affordable housing. I think the way they have done it is they've structured it in a way that it's supposed to still give you the same IRRs as the projects that we do regularly for profit is supposed to give, and they are not able to spend the money. So the problem is that we cannot justify those IRIs. And that's why we can't tap into any sort of pool of equity that's out there because we don't qualify. So we do need investors with that open mind and with the willingness to be able to look at this as sort of their way of giving back as well as still earning money, but at justified rates that can help our project. And we are yet to see that happening within the industry that we're working with and with our limited means um, and knowing that whoever it is that our partners are that have already tried and reached out. The money that we need isn't out there. We also need all the interventions we can get from the provincial and the federal government with regards to CMAC and IO for any projects like this to actually happen and actually go through. So this project is one of the biggest leaps of faith I've ever made in my life. I intend to make sure it becomes a reality. But I tell I, you, I have no different. doubt you will. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. But it is difficult. Well, then cut a check like the uh, the father-in-law did the narrative. Yeah. That's, that's the real vote. You know what? Even buying the <laughs> I got, land was... I got $20 my name on it. Honestly, right now. <laughs> the buying the land and dedicating it to this purpose was also something that my father-in-law helped with. I lost my wow. father to COVID two years ago. It was his teachings that made me want to do this project, but it was my father-in-law who actually drew the check and said, go ahead and do this. We'll support you. So yes, I have those kind of investors, but the big checks for, you know, this project is going to be about $900 million worth of a project. Yeah. How do you raise that money? Yeah. Well, and curiously, bizarrely, or wrongly, there seems to be this misnotion that if I'm doing impact investing, if I'm putting my equity towards something like that, I should get a greater return than just non-impact investing, yes. right? Like, it's, it's yes. incentivize the but practice. But you know what's right? funny? Yeah. That's when we go to our dear banks that are supposed to be the backbone of our, you know, financial world that we live in, such as National Bank and all the rest of the good banks that we know that all have programs dedicated. I'm not sure, you know, exactly how their programs are supposed to work that have programs dedicated to affordable housing. And we are yet to figure out how those programs are supposed to work. Believe me. Yeah. So I think there has to be that intervention happening within the financial world, as well as the city planning and the politics that are Well, involved. I can tell you to defend at least First National at the very least, working with CMHC, they're very focused on on affordability yes. and how they can help at least on the mortgage side with of the CMAC, world, yes. the debt <laughs> side of the world, how that can contribute to affordability. Well, the equity side, sorry, I don't, I don't yeah. know much about so, that. So, you know, First National, Scotiabank, 
names that I can think of, BMO that we've heard that do this, always do it in partnership with uh, CMAC. Now, how can it happen without that partnership? Because that partnership's CMAC being CMAC put so much more restrictions yeah. on any funding that's out there. How do you do that independent yeah. of no, CMAC? That's tough. And unfortunately, so, the insurance of those mortgages that exactly. CMAC provides make that cost of capital one, well, it makes it about a couple hundred basis points or at least a hundred basis points less. So it makes it better for everybody. Yes, but, with I interest mean, rates going up, even know, that a is, yeah. <laughs> is a challenge. <laughs> Uh, Sherry, we, we are at the end of our time today, and I want to thank you for coming on. And I think that this story would be really interesting to revisit, you know, a year from now, 18 months from now, because mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like you're really in the precipice of something great to solve the big riddle of, you know, how do we deal with this as a city? You know, it sounds complicated, but it's a complicated issue. So maybe that's uh, why it requires a complicated And if you solution. want to invest, why don't you throw out, you reach out to Sherry Larjani at Spotlight Development. Oh, yes, please. Thank <laughs> please you. Please email her. <laughs> I won't throw your email address out there, but you, everybody can find everybody Sherry Everybody can find easily. me. And if you can't find me, I am willing to put my email address in She's, bold there's a, there's letters a, up there. Yeah, there's a deposit box at the Spotlight <laughs> office. You yeah. throw 20s in there, whatever you want. You know what? Honestly, we'll take those too. <laughs> yeah. Anything helps. <laughs> thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. We want to thank, of course, Real Estate Forums for hosting us today at the Land and Development Conference and uh, the First National for powering the podcast. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.